The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, yet is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can embrace and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. I had only been given the opportunity to serve food during Sashin in the Zendo once the year before and in a spectacular display of one-pointedness and just-do-it mind, had served an entire ladleful of yogurt into the gaping sleeve of a fellow practitioner's robe as she waited, hands in gasho, for her yummy dessert. Not one drop made it into the bowl. This time I was determined to do better. And so far, I was. I was practically through with my round of the zendo, serving the waiting sashin participants from the hefty and slightly unwieldy ten-quart pot of soup. I had managed to maintain a sushi menu of procedure to help me avoid the previous year's mistake. Footsteps, stop, bow, kneel, serve, aware, elegant, rise, bow, footsteps, etc., etc., one after another. It was going well. As I reached the next to last row needing service, I felt something ever so slight in the area of my hara, or just below. Yes, it was my sitting pants, the nice, big, oversized ones I had bought specially to wear beneath my robes so I could be comfortable sitting so much during sashin. I felt these pants begin to slide just a little down onto my hips and I realized the drawstring must have somehow come undone. Holding my big pot of soup just above nose level, I took a step forward and felt to my horror my pants continue to slide further down until they rested halfway on my hips. An army of sweat began to march across my forehead, very inelegant, and as I took a step toward the next pair of students to serve, I felt my pants start to really let loose beneath my robes. Quickly, I stuck one leg out to catch them before they hit the floor, and as I did this, the head-high ten-quart soup hot lunch 
lurched in the opposite direction with a slosh. I was now standing like a hobbled crane before my waiting fellow students, whose hands were in gosho and whose large black sleeves gaped at me in awe. Or so they seemed. I bowed briefly, somehow knelt, served, stood almost completely up, bowed again and tried to take a step toward the next pair. As I did this, my secret inched onto my thighs, ever closer toward revelation, and I stuck one hip and leg out to catch the slide. With one knee turned in, one pointed out, ankles snow plowing, and butt striking the oddest pose, I hobbled forward like a very poor student of the latest Brazilian dance. <laughs> And with this motion, my pants slid to my knees, where I realized not another step would be allowed. Form is form. And I realized I was now standing in front of the Roshi's wife. Good news, bad news, it didn't matter. Finally, the teachings were beginning to sink in. I made the briefest gasho with my pot and nod, really, and then with terror and exhilaration stood straight up and let my pants reach their destiny. <laughs> the softest sound in the world. I knelt, placed my pot on the floor, goshoed, opened my robes, slid my errant trousers back up to my waist, tied the naughty cord tight, Reassembled my robes, goshed one more time to the kind, kind person before me. She did not budge the entire time. And with a different kind of confidence, I began to serve. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. So if you're sitting in the chair, I want to invite you to sit upright with feet planted firmly on the floor hands possibly lying on your laps, or if you prefer the mudra posture. And likewise, if on cushions, uh, the meditation posture of the Buddha. And just simply close your eyes for a moment. And with an awareness of this very place, this very moment, that very seat you occupy, and the space that surrounds you. Just take a moment to observe without any criticism or judgment, without any anticipation. Just simply observe your experience in this moment. Exhale, relax, and open your eyes. Sometimes things really don't work out very well. This is true both in life and even when we live a spiritual life. You come to a Zen meditation in desperate need of a calming, restorative experience, and after working all day with a racing mind, 
looking forward to doing some quiet meditation, only to have your lower back hurt moments after you start sitting. All your hopes about what meditation will do for you. But it turns out your physical limitations are more intractable than you thought. Your commitment to coming regularly and to establishing a home practice hasn't materialized or you keep finding less and less time to meditate. Life is even worse. You finally get what you want in your career or in a relationship or a lifestyle, but there are still all these problems that you had assumed would go away if only this or that had happened. Or you gradually realize that the thing you always wanted is never going to happen. Finding creative expression, getting economic freedom, having a friend, a partner, a spouse who treats you just the way you want them to. It's not that there aren't lots of good times too, it's just that disappointments can loom so large. In becoming an adult, you learned somewhat how to cope with disappointment or else you wouldn't be able to function at all. Yet, the conundrum remains. If you've learned to live with disappointments, then why are you so disappointed and your disappointment is so difficult to cope with? Why do you get sad, depressed, worried, irritated, moody, anxious, grumpy, lethargic, or non-responsive? Not just every once in a while, but many times in the course of a day or a week. Sometimes in small ways, sometimes big. Why? What's the matter for you? So here we are to talk about when life disappoints us. You saw that ad and you came because you saw that ad. Perhaps. Or maybe you came because you are just curious about what I look like, and here I am. And now you're disappointed. <laughs> fundamental to all Zen teachings, fundamental to the Dharma teachings on life, is that the freedom, the happiness, the release from the control, stress, and anxiety tends to have over our lives is a function of understanding how the mind is operating from moment to moment. Without such an understanding, there are no possibilities. Life continues to be stressful. We continue to be anxious with so many disappointments and occasional happy times too. And so, central to what we call Zen spirituality is the cultivation of wisdom and the application of that wisdom with mindfulness or awareness in living our daily life. Something most of us take for granted. Most of us wake up on Monday morning because the alarm clock went off. And then when we get moving, we tend to live our day quite mechanically. We go to work. We prepare to go to work. We get into the car. We drive to work. We get to work. We do the work. We look for lunch. We have our lunch and so forth and so forth and so forth. 
quite mechanical. And perhaps after a period of time of being disappointed again and again and again, we might just begin to think about what's amiss? What is this all about? And what I described for you is not just the reality of modern day men and women. What I described for you is also the reality of the Buddha 2,700 years ago. He was a character who lived a life of pleasure and luxury. He didn't have to work. He didn't need anything. Everything was provided for him. And yet one day he was disappointed. And he, however, did something about it. And often when I write about what I call authentic spirituality, what I am saying in my writings and in my talks that I've been given now for almost 40 years or more, is that doing something about it is quintessential. To just simply be disappointed and to complain about that disappointment doesn't change anything. There was an ancient philosopher who spoke about this in a different way, but pointed to the same thing. He said, on the day that I experienced my own liberation from my life of suffering or disappointment, stress, and anxiety, it was at the very same moment I realized the benign indifference of the universe to my complaints. You know and so on the path towards doing something about when life disappoints us, we need to begin to understand that, again, we need to do something about that. And that what we need to do is we need to realize the cause of our disappointment, the real cause of our disappointment, and the solution to resolving the cause or causes for our disappointment. And when I use the plural, I mean Tonight we're going to talk about how there really is one singular cause to our disappointments in life, no matter how many of them we have had. And there is really one singular cause as to why our disappointments in life affect us and inform us as deeply as they do, where we tend to seem to be on various points of the spectrum, but either in the extreme where we fall apart and we don't know why our life has any value, or the other end of the spectrum where we go through life forgiving and forgetting until the next time it happens, you see. So one of the problems about translating the teachings of the Buddha Dharma is that modern human beings, I tend to believe, live unrealistically in a realistic reality. I want to say that again so that you hear me. We tend to live unrealistically in a realistic reality. And like all uh, traditions, spiritual traditions, faith-based traditions, or belief systems, and so forth, semantics is always a problem. And so what I have done with the terminology often used to describe the Buddhist teachings is retranslated them into what I believe they meant. And so, for example, when we talk about the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism, we're not talking about them as truths in the way that we tend to talk about truth in religion. 
we mean them to be realizations. When the Buddha was disappointed and set out to understand his disappointment and to resolve it for himself, he had four particular realizations that have come to be known in the history of Buddhism as the Four Noble Truths. But what they really were were realizations. And when he began to teach these realizations to others, rather reluctantly, because he really had no intention of becoming a teacher and becoming a historical figure we think of today. But when he finally did begin to teach them, he wanted people to understand that they were not, for example, metaphors. They were not <coughs> philosophical in nature. They were not for debate. They, he meant, literally. And the first realization of the Buddha and the first truth that he uh, shared when he began to teach, he wanted us to understand so fact-based that he taught his closest disciples, resolve this truth and everything else becomes automatically resolved. Everything else falls into place. And he said, life is suffering. He said it so that we understood that what life was, the very stuff of life, is the stuff of suffering. For tonight's topic, he might have said it this way. Life is going to disappoint you. And you are going to disappoint others. And there's no getting out of it. There's no getting around it. And on the path of resolving this for ourselves, and experiencing what he also said in the third noble truth, when he said, but there's cessation from this suffering. On the path toward resolving that fact of life, that life is going to disappoint me, and I am going to disappoint life. It comes along with the package. He said on the path towards cessation of that, you need to get over it. So when we talk tonight about the paradigm for cessation from the results of our disappointments that often, again, leave us stressed and depressed and unhappy and going through life hoping and hoping again and again that if only this happens, happiness will come to me, and arrive at the place the Buddha Dharma intended us to always arrive at and to know here and now, and that is our own freedom in this moment no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Or in other words, no matter the disappointment. So life will disappoint us, but our disappointment is optional. Life will disappoint us, but our disappointment is optional. And it's optional because our disappointment is of our own making is of our own making. And when we know that to be true for ourselves, then we have power. Then we have possibility. The first rule in practicing Zen spirituality or any authentic spirituality is stop trying to get something out of Zen. And I would say stop trying to get something out of life. Just do the practice. Just meditate. 
There is a sign on the portal above the gate to hell in Dante's Divine Comedy. It reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Hope can often be a hallucinogenic, disguised refusal to be with things just as they are in the moment. Often our hope for things to be different in life is not hope as we really mean to know it, but a refusal on my part to be with things as they really are. Always wanting, always craving, something different, something more, something better. When the Buddha talked about the nature of suffering and its causes, he said that we suffer about the things that disappoint us in life because we want it to be different. Not because of what really happened, not because of the disappointment, but because our disappointment with it is filled with wanting it to be different than the way it is, wanting him to be different than the way he is, wanting her to be different than the way she is. And the way we often approach handling that discontentment or dissatisfaction is that we once again pick up our stuff and go in pursuit of something more, something better, and something different. And if you've been here before, and if you've listened to my teachings in the past, you've heard me say that the more better and different syndrome, or circle, is an endless, endless, endless pursuit of happiness in an effort to appease a part of our consciousness called ego. That is, and you need to hear this, irreversibly unappeasable. Irreversibly unappeasable. And it is irreversibly unappeasable because, or at least most people have a difficulty with what I just said, because they don't understand that that part of our consciousness that is always dissatisfying, dissatisfied, disappointed, and complaining about life is not designed, are you ready for this, to ever be satisfied. It's not its design purpose. So I started out a few minutes ago by saying that authentic spirituality, Zen spirituality, has its roots in a clear understanding of how mind is operating from moment to moment. And that part of our mind, that part of our consciousness, that is constantly measuring and qualifying and testing and judging and criticizing life, we call ego. And our ego, singular design purpose, is not about being satisfied. It can be gratified, and we all know what that's about, when we get finally what we want. So we go through life disappointed, and we finally get what we want, or at least what we thought will make us happy if we get it. And we're happy. And I just say, Anyone have a watch for the second hand? I often tell people the story about when I was eight years old, I was absolutely, positively confident. And I was screaming at my father for him to understand that what was going to make my life perfect, perfect, was a red fire truck that shot water from it. He got it doesn't work for me anymore. It doesn't work for me anymore. 
And we need to see that for ourselves. And the reason why we need to see that for ourselves is that part of what we're going to do this month and next month is relearn our conditioned reactions. In the meditation, I asked you to observe how you reacted to your disappointment. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But if we do not change our habitual reaction to our disappointment <coughs> and apply what the Buddha called skillfulness to responding to our disappointments, in addition to wisdom, there are no possibilities. There is no cessation available. So we need to see how our life's devotion to trying to appease ego, that part of our consciousness that craves and desires and wants, <coughs> gets, gets what it wants, momentarily finds some satisfaction in that, only to get dissatisfied again. But that way of living doesn't work. And, you know, when the Buddha was asked in his lifetime by someone, define what this teaching is all about. And there was a scholar on the road who met him. He said, I've heard about you. I've heard about what you've been talking about. Can you summarize it in a very brief sentence? And he said, I will do that for you, and you still won't understand it. But I will do that for you. And he said, when you find what works in your life, do that. When you find what doesn't work in your life, don't do that. That's the Buddha Dharma. That's my teachings. You know and what doesn't work in life, whether you've come to realize it for yourself or not, and you need to. Don't just listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. You need to realize this for yourself. When you come to realize, as the philosopher realized the benign indifference of the universe to his complaints, when you come to realize that a lifetime devotion to trying to appease what is designed by purpose irreversibly unappeasable, that's not only not working, that's plain stupid. And there's nothing that kills life more than ignorance or stupidity, as the Buddha said, when he identified ignorance in the second noble truth as the cause of our suffering. But back to Dante. Hope often can be an hallucinogenic, disguised refusal to be with things just as they are in the moment. When you reject the moment that is arising just because it is unpleasant or disappointing, you are rejecting the only moment you have in which to be really alive. The only moment in which you can feel and act. If you are lost in disappointment about the future or the past, you are not fully and authentically present in the moment. So what I'm talking about here is that one of our reactions to disappointment that again is unskillful and never leads to anything other than more suffering is that when life disappoints us, we enter into a story about. The mind begins to create, and that when I say the mind, I mean that part of our consciousness we call ego. Ego's effort to deal with disappointment is to create a story about the circumstance, to create a story about the event. We start to think about it from a very critical and judgmental way. We start to think about what would be more, what would be better. 
And if you notice, our solution to most of our disappointments is, again, to find something different and to get more of that and to make it better, if you will. And the story is always about that. All stories are filled with more, better, and different. The stories we see on television, the stories we see in commercials. Commercials, the marketing system, I often say, and you've heard me say this in the past, that world economies will collapse when you get this. Because world economies are dependent upon our ignorance that if you only had more of this or this better product or this different product, then your life would be better. And you would never be disappointed again. Do you know how many guys my age actually thought the girl came with the car? And how many girls thought that if they used that extra whitener, the guy would be exactly the way they wanted them to be? The market is dependent upon our ignorance about ego. Ego is satisfied only temporarily because its design purpose is to keep life always in check for your survival. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it is essential for us to understand that if we're going to do the work of this month and next month, where we learn how to react or respond to disappointments in life that will ultimately lead to our cessation from our stress and anxiety about those disappointments, we need to see and become intimately clear about the condition, that is to say, how we have learned to react to disappointments. Those reactions, when you do the work of meditation, and mindful awareness of your, uh, doing meditation, you begin to see how those reactions are by nature habitual. And another term for habitual is learned reactions. You react that way simply because that's how you learn to react that way. And then you reinforce that lesson in your lifetime by reacting that way the same way every time. You know how they say you're so predictable? You are. You see. They know that if they say it this way, they will get that from you. You see. Because that's what you always do. And you do it that way because you're not aware that, again, the, when we take a look at the paradigm of ego, it is a mechanical response to life. All our reactions to stimuli are mechanical in nature and part of our conditioning. And if we never know that about ourselves, what we fail to see is that our disappointment is not necessarily because the existing circumstances and situations are inherently disappointing, but because we tend to see it that way. In fact, we do see it that way. This very moment, I know something that makes it possible for me to teach for 40 years and keep teaching. Do you know what that is? Anyone? Want to give it a shot? You're not listening to me. That's what I know. And that's why I don't get too concerned. What mind is doing in every moment is hearing my words, hearing my teachings, 
and recreating it according to your expectations. And you all know that the singular cause of disappointment is what? Unfulfilled expectations. Okay? So in Zen we say a friend is someone who agrees with us. An enemy is someone who doesn't. And to know that provides us with possibility. We need to step out of the sentimental hearing about that and see how that really works for us. So at every moment, my mind and your mind, we all do it because we all share the same paradigm of consciousness. Mind is always recreating the circumstances of the moment and the situation in the moment, all of its details, from soup to nuts, according to my expectations. I never really see you. I never really hear you. I hear your words, but I am always, mind is always observing the circumstance and situation from a place where it is interpreting those circumstances and situation to mean what they mean according to my expectations. And my expectations include my opinions, my beliefs, my ideas, my desires, and my cravings. That's why I say to you, or you say to me, I don't say it to you. If I said to you, there'd be scandal. But you say to me, if you loved me, you would. If you loved me, you would. How many times have we thought that about someone? And how many times has someone thought that about us and told us? If you really loved me, you would. And what you need to know about that profound, honest reality is that, again, we are experiencing love almost exclusively, unless we're open to learn and discover and explore. And that's what we call in Zen beginner's mind. We are experiencing love from moment to moment like everything else, according to our definition of what it looks like, sounds like, feels like, and would be like if it really was love, if it really was. Our disappointments with our lovers, our friends, with our jobs, with our careers, it begins with, at least, owning our expectations and how in that given moment of disappointment, those expectations are not being fulfilled. And the suffering we have about those disappointments we are creating. We are creating. How do you change that? I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> we are creating. Okay? But change it, as Ellen asked, we must. It's kind of like a saying, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk. But you do have to live like a monk. You see? And a monk is always about making those changes. And we'll talk about how you change it in a few moments. But before we can talk about how you change it, you need to know what you need to change. You need to know what you need to change. And what is unique to Buddhism is Buddhism is never about the person. The teachings are never about you. What I mean by that is this. 2,700 years ago, one of the other realizations of the Buddha is that the universe and everything in the universe, including you and me, was perfect and complete. 
possessed all the enlightenment and all the wisdom and all the understanding and love and compassion there ever was going to be. And that is our true reality. If that is so, he went on to say, then why do we suffer? Why do we get stressed out and anxious and disappointed with ourselves and others? It's because we are ignorant of that fact. We become ignorant of that fact somewhere in what psychotherapists call our formation years. We are born with that knowledge. We live a period of time operating from that place about ourselves. And then somewhere along the line, we become convinced we're not. Somewhere along the line, I say that gets shocked out of us. Someone scares that notion out of us. Perhaps they say, you're bad. You're not worthy. You're not valuable enough. You need to discover for yourself when that happened for you in your story. Then you need to let that go. Because in order to make the changes that Ellen just asked, how we change, we need a foundation to build from. And the foundation is that we are at all times this wondrous, as the Buddha called it, and miraculous field of unlimited potential. That is our reality like everything else in the universe. When we know that about ourselves, and not just we believe it, but we know it, we have that experience at every moment, and one of the ways we attain that experience is through deep meditation training that goes on in Buddhist monasteries. He designed a training for us to wake up to that experience. And another way to know that experience is to understand that the way in which we reinforce the ignorance, the opposite experience of that, and this is how we change it all, is we become fully aware of our habitual behaviors that continue to reinforce that ignorance. Our behavior reinforces our belief systems. The word believe means, translated in Webster Buddha's dictionary, to live by. When I talk about believe, I'm talking about this is what I live by. So it is not enough to just believe this. We need to believe it. We need to live by it. And habits are what they are, and you know about them. Habits are these kind of life forces of their own, with minds of their own, where we are reacting before thinking about it. They become habitual by, again, our uh, complacency and lack of awareness of how through a lifetime of reacting to someone's opinion about us in the same way. So let's talk about that scenario. Early on in our life, somewhere, we became convinced we were not good enough. It happens to all of us. It happened to the Buddha. It happened to Jesus. It happens to all of us. So somewhere in our life, we become convinced we are not good enough. And we reacted to that notion. We reacted to it. And that reaction over the years became our habitual response to that notion. And every time we reacted to someone's negative opinion of us, you will notice, if you do the work, that that's the way we always reacted. 
We've always been reacting that way. The only way you change negative habits that reinforce negative behavior, that reinforces negative experiences of yourself, is by replacing them with positive habits and reinforce those habits by habitually behaving or living by that way. So it's not like, I believe I'm a Buddha and now I can go through life and everything will be okay. No. We need to live like a Buddha in order for that belief to be reinforced and anchored in our very lifestyle and our experience eventually. Thought creates actions. Actions create effects. Effects create causes, and causes reinforce our experience. They reinforce our experience. So every time I disagree with you, and you shudder, and become shameful, or, or self-doubtful, and so forth, what I know about that is that that's what you learned early on, that's the way you've been reacting, and part of our work in the days ahead is to learn how to respond differently than that. Whether you believe it or not. And that's another important key here. Most people fail in whatever commitment they make, whether it's to their diet, to exercising, to living more healthy, because they do it for a while and nothing changes, or very little changes, or they get tired of doing it, and they return to their old habits. And all that does is reinforce the past again. In this very moment, the Buddha said, right here, right now, we all possess the power of recreating the karma from the past that has brought us to where we are now and creating the future to be differently if we know how. Any questions? <coughs> Liz in New York. Roshi, may I speak? Hi. How do you... Um, reinforce the new habits. Okay, you have to be aware that those bad, those habits, some habits aren't working for you. And you want to change those habits to something that is. But you have a life, you have often a long time of uh, re reacting to those bad habits. So you have, one would have to commit oneself to changing those habits and finding, as you said, positive ones, mm -hmm. seems to me it would take a really long time to do that because the old habits have been ingrained for so long in your psyche or in your mind. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a lot of hard work. The well, first thing you have to do is recognize that, yeah. of course. And once you do... Yeah. First, let me start with the last thing you said. It is a lot of hard work. Okay? It's a lot of hard work. Authentic spirituality is hard work. Okay? As to the other thing you asked about, the length of time it takes, that really is like everything else in the process, entirely up to how bad you want it. Okay? Yeah. Uh, I'm writing uh, a, an article for my blog titled, uh, No Excuses, Just Priorities, okay? 
So again, we have a cultural conditioning or cultural myth that excuses really exist, and they really don't exist, okay? Excuse is a very convenient term we use to not reveal our priorities in life, okay? So it really does come down to how bad I really want something, all right? So, you know, and, and the evidence of which is that, you know, we all know someone, you do, I do, who has a sudden terminal illness out of nowhere show up. And ch the whole life changes, the way they approach it, the way they live it, just from that moment experience. They don't even go to a Zen monastery to train. They have this awakening and they make the changes to turn their life around and so forth. Whereas someone may get, and I use this as an example because I know I've been talking to about six of them in the last four months. Someone may get diagnosed with lung cancer and still smoke, okay, and so forth. So again, it really is how bad do you want it? That really is it. So let me take it back another step. Yes, I must own my stuff. That's where it starts. All of it. All of it. No matter how much mind may convince me that the source of my suffering is outside me. And no matter how rational and reasonable the story mind creates about that, there is no power possible for me until I own all my stuff. All of it. Whether I believe it or not, there is no possibility. And again, those of you who have been here in the past have often heard me use the example when I've asked the question about relationships. When I am absolutely convinced, you and I are in a relationship, and I am absolutely convinced that my life will not get any better in this relationship until you change. What do I get to do in that relationship? Wait forever. Wait. Wait. That's all I get to do. That's all I get to do. Because you are never going to change. And one of the reasons why you're never going to change is because you're waiting for me to change. And I got news for you. <laughs> I'm not changing. You see? So the Buddha, when he was asked, what really is ours? You know, what really belongs to a person when we talk about mine. And he went through this litany and this list of you know, people, places, things, possessions. He said, none of that really is ours because they all exist in the domain of impermanency. Everything changes. Even the people we love and dedicate our life to for the rest of our lives will get sick and die and leave us. Even the things we own will break and rotten and you know, we need to get new stuff. And finally, he said, the only thing that I can say is mine, truly, are my actions. And he said that as a liberated being, because he understood that if he was ever, if any of us were ever able to claim our life, having a life that was truly ours, it begins with owning my stuff. So many people, at least it's been my experience over the last four years, come to a Zen monastery to train. And either when they find out how difficult and hard it is, they leave. Or, 
Another reason is that they never really own not only the stuff they want to transform, but they, own, they never really own the work. Okay, they never really own the process. So when, again, Ellen asked the question, how do we change? It must begin by owning the facts. We can't be Republican about this, where we have facts, but we're not gonna go by those facts. This dharma, incomparable, profound, and minutely subtle, can be seen. What we talk about here is that when you do the work, and if you don't trust a Zen monk, ask a psychotherapist. When you do the work of inquiring into the nature of mind, and that part of our consciousness called ego, we see that what always is impeding our efforts to be happier, to be content, and to be satisfied are these habitual behaviors that we were conditioned early on to react to unwanted circumstances and situations. The cause of all dissatisfaction and disappointment are unfulfilled expectations. We're never dissatisfied when the circumstance meets our expectation. We're only dissatisfied when the circumstance doesn't meet our expectation. Do the math. So again, the Buddha said, when you really look at that from, again, a position of wanting to do the work that leads to cessation from suffering, the first thing you do is you own your stuff. You own your stuff. You know? I am both the cause of my disappointment and the solution to my satisfaction at every time, every moment of the way. I am always the cause of my dissatisfaction and the solution. Now, none of this in any way denies or negates that people behave badly towards us. Not at all. Not at all. It happens every day. It happens to me every day. It happened earlier today when I was driving the car. You see? Happens every day. Okay? But my reaction to that behavior is my reaction to that behavior. And that's where I am experiencing life every moment. I'm not experiencing life from where that driver was driving her car. I'm experiencing it from here. This is where it's going on for me, in this body, in this mind, right here, right now. If I want to change any of that, I need to change it within me. I cannot change it anywhere else. In Zen, the, par the paradigm for that change, the formula for that change, begins with the cultivation of wisdom. By wisdom, I mean here a clear understanding of how the mind operates from moment to moment. The mind, for example, does not discriminate. What do I mean by that? It experiences real threat and perceived threat the same way. The same way. Psychotherapy scientists have gone to great lengths to understand this by wiring monks up while under meditation and noticing that given the same stimuli, a real threat and a perceived threat 
the brain tends to ignite or put into uh, you know, operation the same process as if the being is literally being chased by a predator while the being is just thinking about being chased by a predator. Think about that. You need to just see that for yourself. The mind does not discriminate. It experiences real threat and perceived threat the same way, unless, unless you know how to transform that. Here's part of it. Buddhism teaches that we experience everything in terms of what is called the eight worldly concerns. So, at every moment, my mind is perceiving the world around me by these eight worldly concerns. Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Pleasure and pain. Happiness and unhappiness. We perceive or experience the world around us in every moment. And if you, again, do the work of serious meditation, you become familiar with the thinking process of ego. And when you observe those thought processes that are going on for us, they are always operating from, again, a gain or loss. Is this good for me or not good for me? Is this good or bad? Do I like it or not like it? Am I happy or am I sad? The eight worldly concerns are always dualistic in nature. Now here's where the problem lies. There's a school of thought out there that says, think positive. But here's where the problem lies. You can't think happy without sad as a shadow. And again, science has proven the fact that when you approach a stairway and you're going up, okay, the brain that creates the ability for your body to make those moves to go up is not thinking up. It's thinking down. In the same way that a photographer will show you that when the camera is looking at you, the image inside the camera is upside down. It's the opposite. You see? Duality, the Buddha said, is the problem. If we are constantly obsessing on what we want, we have to remember that it brings along a friend what we don't want. <laughs> what we don't want. So we are constantly experiencing the world from this very dualistic approach. And when we approach life dualistically, there will be suffering. There will be suffering. The Buddha was even clear that even obsession with pleasure, not that he had any problem with pleasure. This was a guy that lived a life of pleasure for half his lifetime, you know saying, and even afterwards, but differently, you know saying. But that when our life is obsessing with just pleasure, 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 you know, it's kind of like what Friday and Saturday night are like. We go out, we have a great time, and then Sunday shows around. You know? And if that's not bad enough, Monday. <laughs> you see? 
We, of course, want gain, praise, pleasure, and happiness, but the Buddha referred to them as the terrible twins because each always arrives with its opposite. One cannot be open to praise and not receive blame. One cannot experience pleasure and not feel pain. This is the nature of the reality that we know. We approach life from a very dualistic place. So the solution to that quickly, and this is the short version of something we'll explore the length of in the next, uh, this month and next month, the solution to that is not to live at either extreme, not to dwell on the future when things will get better, and not to dwell on the past the way things have been so bad, but somewhere in the middle. And <coughs> Buddhism have often, has often been referred to as the middle way. Somewhere in the middle, and there is a middle. There is an alternative to our gain and loss, happy or sad, and so forth. In Zen, the term used to describe it is contentment. And if you drive up when the sun's out, you may notice a boulder at the front of the driveway, and carved in that boulder are the words, I'm learning to be content. And that's what Zen training is, learning to be content, learning to live in the middle, right here, where life is really happening. Because the other thing you need to understand is that on these, out here, that's, life is not happening out there. What's happening out there is the story you call your life, but the story is just the story about your life. Life is always happening outside the story. Life is always happening outside the story. You cannot rely on the story to live your life. And you can have a story. I've got one too. You don't want to hear it. <coughs> you can have a story. But when you begin to mistaken the story called my life, with life there will be suffering. Any questions? How do you let go of expectation? I'm sorry? How do you let go of expectations, particularly when it's so enlivened by our culture, our American culture? Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to say two things about that. First thing I want to say about that is how bad do you want to be free of the trap that expectation keeps us in? And the second thing I want to say is that there's nothing wrong with having expectations. The problem is they have you. Okay? I have expectations too, just as my monks and students, okay? But the difference for me is I don't expect my students to follow my expectations. <laughs> and I do that for my sake and yours, <laughs> okay? So like that. So it's like people ask about goals. There's nothing wrong with having goals as long as they don't have you. So most people have these goals for a better future and they work towards that and miss life going on right here, right now. That's the difference, you know. Yeah. Winston Churchill once said, uh, planning is a waste of time, but having plans, you should. Anyone else? Thank you. 
Are negative habits defined by disappointment? Say that again. Are all negative habits defined by disappointment? Disappointments are defined by negative habits. Okay? So again, our habitual reaction to disappointments def uh, define us. Or at least that's how we uh, operate with that. So the work is to step out of those definitions. Not to be defined by my disappointments. I have disappointments, but they certainly don't define me. Or my life. You know, it's kind of like you're going to get disappointed. If you've been listening, the first noble truth says to us, life is a problem. Get over it. Life is disappointing. Get over it. Okay? So there's going to be disappointments. Not only am I going to be disappointed, you're going to be disappointed because I'm going to disappoint you. You know, when I talk about this in relationships, in February I'll be doing for the 30th time the relationship seminar. And I talk about, you know, in relationships, uh, we, there's a part of the seminar that's about uh, problems, working with problems. And one of the things I tell people about problems is that the Buddha taught that life is problematic. And that's not the problem. The problem about problems is that you've got a problem with problems. You know what I'm So, you know, when we talk about the, the vows that we make at the time of getting married and things like that, one of them should always be, and I promise I will disappoint you. You know what I'm And the reason why marriages get all crazy is because we never are honest about that. You know what I'm we are never honest about that. So one of the things I tell people is that love always shows up after the honeymoon. It shows up after the honeymoon and way after the honeymoon. You know, the honeymoon has nothing to do with anything. You know, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars on this celebration and then a few weeks later somebody's disappointed because nobody warned them. You know what I'm Life is disappointing, but we don't need to be disappointed. And if we can learn how not to be disappointed by our disappointments, we, we, you know, most people are like, oh, there's a whole new world. Hi. Uh, I'm on my Duca, yes. Duca, okay. Uh, my question is, is there an I in, or a self in Buddhism? No. Okay. I, I'm trying to. There's a, yeah, there's a recognition of that we have this, what Einstein called optical delusion. Okay. We have this experience of self. We call myself. But when you again do this work, you quickly discover that's an optical delusion, it doesn't exist. And a perfect example of what I said earlier, that eight-year-old kid that was convinced his life would be perfect with that red fire truck is gone. Right. Doesn't it's exist anymore. Right, okay. Yeah. He continues in. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Maisie? Uh, you had said in the beginning of the process of working stuff uh, that you that we look in and we see that you're all born as, as Buddha as perfect beings 
seems to me that that's something that uh, becomes, that you know that at the end of the process, or at least a good way into the process, that it wouldn't, it would be known in your head, that it would be yeah. a theoretical thing at first. And, and your question points to a very important problematic fact. We know very little how to live as we are. We always have to have a reason. So what I said was, our reality is that. And we need to live like that, whether we believe it or not. Okay? So the ground, you're right. That realization is what follows. That's the effect of the practice and of the training. But we need to live that realization as if it is so now. Because the habitual behavior is to, again, every time either I disappoint myself or someone else disappoints me, is to fall back into that negative story about me, myself, and life. You know, he don't like me because I'm so, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, or I don't like him because he's so. And then we make those choices, life choices, from that. So, the, again, the, the launch pad, the foundation, which is what you hear me talk about, we need to build in order to put this stuff to work skillfully and effectively, is this is never about who I am or who you are. We've resolved that. We have said, whether I know it now or not, I will act as Buddha and treat you as Buddha. Whether I have reason or not to, mm -hmm. that is the way it is. You know, it's like my promise to, to Katie. My promise to Katie is, Daddy absolutely loves you, but doesn't always feel that way, but will always act that way. Okay? Will always act that way. Doesn't always feel that way, but you can rely on, that's where I'm always coming from, and so forth. And if we can't commit to living our lives like that, okay? Because again, our conditioning is, well, I don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. well, so what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so what? What's that got to do with anything? You know? It's, and really, what does that have to do with anything? Right. And if we can train like that, okay? then you're right, then that feeling shows up later on. That experience, that's what it means to realize. To realize is to awaken what's so into realization, making it real. You can't realize what's not so. You can only realize what's so. Does everybody understand that? That's not my definition, that's Webster's, okay? So, so I'm just going to give other circumstances. Um, so a situation occurs and fear comes up and old patterns come up that you're dealing with yourself that mm -hmm. you, you see from way back and they come up and whatever. And the first thing is, you know, you're not enough or you made another mistake or whatever. Whatever the stuff, story Whatever is. the story that we tell yeah. I tell myself, right, and and so it's like a, to to then use that as a linchpin of saying I, to understand that I am a perfect 
being that I was born with that perfection. Is 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 that's the handle on this? Yeah, the handle, yeah, it's something like that. So let me just say what you just said a little differently, okay? We know what's good for us. We know what's bad for us. That's why the Buddha said what he said, okay? So when the story comes up, and, and often you've heard me say, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young Buddhist, you who are on the road must have a code that you live by. And this is why, again, you can't just do this. Nobody can do this. You need to have a code that you are committed to living by. So the code that I'm committed to living by is to always do the least harm, no matter what. Okay? So my intention is to never harm myself or harm another life. That is my intention about everything. And I say it that way because there are going to be times where I don't meet that. And then, like you've heard me say, then I clean up my mess. That's what I mean by owning it. I own my actions and the results. So if I make a mess, I'm going to clean that up. But it is my intention that when that story shows up in my head, I don't behave as the story dictates. No matter what. No matter what. So if the story says, what I heard you say, you're not worthy, I behave as I am worthy, whether I feel that way or not. That is the only way I can change that habitual behavior. If the story says, don't forgive him, I forgive. Okay? You know, Gandhi was asked, what is your revolution? You know, when the, record, when the reporters were following him, they got him and they said, all right, so what is your revolution? And he said, here's my revolution. Every time the British take their sticks and beat me, I will not respond by beating them. That's what he said his revolution was. Period. Now obviously his revolution was a lot more than that sentence. But that was the ground of his being. He said, no matter how much I may want to beat the daylights out of them, okay, no matter how much I may want to hurt them, and no matter how much I may even feel justified in doing. You know, one of the problems about, you know, the, the stories surrounding faith in the faith-based traditions is this, you know, self-righteousness nonsense. I may even be self-righteous, he says, but I will not act that way. I will not behave that way. And something in Gandhi, just like something in Buddha, and something in me, and something in you, says to us, somehow, behaving that way just perpetuates behaving that way. So if I never change my behavior, and the only way I can change my behavior is that I must be committed to it that way. That way. Now, am I always going to be perfect in that commitment? No. Not until that realization happens. And even after then, what do the ancient Zen masters say? 10,000 more hours of meditation after enlightenment. Okay? Because it's always about training and keeping in check this egocentric part of our consciousness that is part of our consciousness. It's not the enemy. It's not the opposition. It's part of our consciousness. So do I never think 
of punching a Republican? No. Okay? No. I want to do that a lot. Okay? Do I ever? No. I can't guarantee that for the future, but I haven't yet. Okay? All right? Like that. Okay? Is that helpful? I can't say enough that about this is a way of life. It is not a supplement to your life as it is now. It is a way of life. And anybody that has ever worked in any field of human development will tell you supplements don't work. <laughs> they don't work. This is a way of living your life. It's not even a diet, because you know how you do diets, okay? This is a way of living your life requiring you to change the whole package. Do you have a hand? What, yeah, what's your I, name? I, uh, my name is Chase. Hi, Chase. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering about, generally about enlightenment, and is it something, is that something everyone strives for? No. It, I mean, it's something that I'm sure people strive for, okay. uh, but the teaching is not to strive for it because the teaching is Chase is already enlightened. Okay. Just do the practice and you'll realize that for yourself. Is it deeper understanding? Is it something everyone's searching for? Uh, I'm looking at things in, in as different ways because you yeah. can say uh, a certain religion, you know, uh, the goal is heaven, this is that. I'm trying to wrap understand things better for myself. Yeah, I believe having come from uh, Roman Catholicism, having become a biblical scholar and studying the various different religious approaches to this, yes. I believe that it is universal. Everybody's looking for the same thing. What we Buddhists talk about is Buddha nature, uh, original nature, you know, true self, and I believe that we're all looking for that. That's what we're looking for. We want to know that again. Because as St. Augustine wrote, our hearts remain restless until they rest in that, which he called God. Okay? So I'm convinced that, yes, we're all looking for that. Uh, what the Buddha prescribed, because that's all he was interested in, was how to achieve that skillfully. Okay? And the skillful means is to not go looking for it, it's, as I've been saying so far, it's being it now and every now of your life, whether you know it or not. The experience will follow. And then the experience will go away again. And that's why the ancients and masters all said the same thing to their Zen students. You know, and they would say, so what happens after enlightenment? They said, 10,000 more hours of meditation. Thank you. Anyone else? We'll take a minute break, give you an opportunity to stand up if you need to shake off your body and go to the bathroom and then we'll come back. So to dwell on either, either side of the peripheral, that is to say, to dwell on gain or to dwell on loss is unskillful. 
we need to find a middle way of approaching living life more skillfully. Duality leads to suffering. It leads to suffering because even when I dwell on or become obsessed with gain, its sister, its twin, is always right behind, which is loss. What goes up always comes down. That's the law of duality, as well as the law of gravity. It is the denial of, of this truth that is the cause of all suffering. We cling to our desire for the positive in life while being filled with aversion to the negative events that occur. Yet despite all our efforts, we don't get many of the things we want and they don't continue to satisfy us or they go away. Thus the first noble truth, the existence of dukkha, a feeling of unsatisfactoriness that accompanies every experience in which we are identified with our needs. So this unsatisfactoriness, again, is a function of our unfulfilled expectation. Whenever we believe that the solution to our happiness is a particular set of conditions or circumstances or situations that if only they were present, then I could be happy. The problem with that, and there really isn't anything wrong with that, we all like to create a nice home, we like to have nice things, myself included, and, and have fun and pleasurable experiences. The problem is that the ego part of our consciousness clings to that and wants it to stay, and the problem with that is everything is of the nature of impermanence. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. So Suzuki Roshi often uh, practiced reminding his students whether they were happy or sad, whether they were in a blissful state of meditation or not so blissful state of meditation, he responded the same way. Don't worry, it'll pass. Happiness comes and happiness goes. Or as I tend to talk about it, we're talking about what I call waiting for the bus spirituality. Okay? If you know how to wait for the bus like Forrest Gump, then you find contentment just waiting for the bus. Because every bus that comes and goes, there's always one following. What always follows the bus we call happiness is sadness. And when sadness comes about, all we need to train in is to remember that everything is of the nature of impermanence. This is not a Buddhist teaching. This is a quantum physics reality of the universe. Nothing lasts. Everything changes. So when sadness shows up in our life, just take care of business because it too will pass. And when happiness shows up in our life, enjoy it. In fact, when we obsess about the happiness, as much as we obsess about the sadness, for example, when we obsess about the happiness and we try to make sure it stays around and what have you, it's kind of like, you know, the last time I talked, I talked about uh, on, on the internet, they were talking about how when the Pope was in Philadelphia, uh, everybody was obsessing with their iPhones to get his picture, and then he was standing right there in front of us. <coughs> Someone they were never going to probably ever get the chance to see again. And they were obsessing about getting his picture. They never even saw the man, you see. Never even seized the opportunity. 
you see? And that's how we do it. That's how we do it. And, and so when we are happy, be happy. But if you can learn to be happy, and when that bus leaves the corner, not be frustrated by that or disappointed with that, that's what we call real happiness or contentment. When Dante first sees those famous words above the gate to hell, he is very alarmed and disappointed and asks Virgil, who is his guide through hell, what they mean. Virgil answers that they mean to abandon distrust and cowardliness. Cowardliness. Sorry, say that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It would be great if life proceeded from mo one moment of perfect happiness to the next. But for most of us, this is not the case. So just as Dante did, we must proceed by another path, the path through our personal hell, where we encounter moments of pain and feelings of loss and confusion. Given that this is so, you can either live in denial of the truth of your experience or obsess on your pains and disappointments, or you can consciously accept, even embrace life, not working out, and trust that in doing so, you will discover real meaning in your life. The real meaning in life is not to have it overly filled with happiness and a little bit of sadness. The real meaning in life comes from the ability to hold happiness and sadness in equanimity. In equanimity. And remembering something Vietnam veterans regularly said to each other when we were walking through disaster. It don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing. Neither this or this. And that's where we go back to where we started this evening. When the ancient philosopher found his own liberation from suffering, at the same time he realized that not only was the universe benignly indifferent to his complaints, and you're not going to like this, so I'm warning you so I don't disappoint you. So you've been warned. But the universe doesn't care anything mm. about our story. Mm. Not a part of it. How do I know that? Death. It does not discriminate. It doesn't care how good you were, and it doesn't care how bad you are. It takes everybody. You know what I'm saying? It takes everybody. Mother Nature, that sweet little old woman, you know? She just sunk hundreds of people in mud the last few days. And I guarantee you, a few of them were Zen monks. You know what I'm saying? Didn't care. Didn't care who was in its path. And the sooner we realize that there isn't this mythical, you know, piece of the universe that is sitting around waiting for me to get happy and trying to figure out what to do for me to get there, that's the sooner we are able to own our stuff and make our way through this paradoxical reality and live more realistically in a realistic reality and so forth. Disappointment. <coughs> Excuse me. I need to back up. If you choose to consciously embrace pain and loss as your teachers, life itself is not disappointing. It is a series of moments to practice being with life as it is. To do so is to make 
life, your spiritual practice. So again, as I said earlier, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live like a monk. And to live like a monk is to define life as a spiritual practice. Uh, Chardin once wrote that we are all spiritual beings having a human experience, but we don't live that way. Most of the people that approach spirituality, particularly in our modern culture, are human beings trying to have a spiritual experience. But, and so when I tell them that being human is as spiritual it gets, and so forth, they don't like that. They don't like that. Because, again, they don't understand that I'm talking about being human. And most of us aren't being human when we're running fearfully away from the stuff that disappoints us and trying to build up a stockpile, the stuff we think that will make us happy while it is of the nature of impermanence. The middle way says that the key to learning how to navigate through a paradoxical impermanent universe is to learn how to be with life just as it is and just as it isn't and every moment. And that is training. And we'll talk more about that training uh, next month. Any questions? Hi. So once you realize you have a, uh, a dilemma, like you said, and you want to change that path, that means, like you said, the opposite. So if your normal reaction would be to be get upset, you would counteract that and be neutral? Okay, we need to make a, in order for me to answer that, we need to make a distinction between the experience we call upset and being upset, okay? So in Zen, you train in the meditation, meditation training, you learn how to experience what is going on in the moment, to experience it, to, you know, most of the time when upset shows up, our reaction is to avert it, to fight or flee, or there's a third position, we get paralyzed, we get stuck in it, and we obsess on it, okay? To fully experience something in the moment is to allow, I'm going to use Maisie's uh, word she used, the fear to be present and to act fearlessly, despite it. So an example I often use about that is that, and I've had the opportunity to be in the company of real heroes and courageous men and women. And when you ask them, when you ran back into that building and could have died, you know, were you afraid? And they said, damn straight I was, okay? So we often have this television Hollywood view that the hero is fearless, doesn't have, the hero acts fearlessly but is filled with fear at the same time. And that is why he or she, and this, this is, to see this, is able to get into a building and make their way to their target and bring that target out safely, okay? They don't let the fear cloud their view, all right? And that's what we're talking about. Through real meditation training, we learn how to experience the stuff that impedes us from being fully alive. And there's a quantum physics rule that is also a Buddhist rule. Whenever you fully experience something, it disappears. 
Whatever you resist persists and eventually you become. Okay? So, you know, like being a single father of a six-year-old daughter, okay? You know, there are times, like I warn her, I don't feel all that love for her. In fact, I want to, you know, you know, okay, all right? And that's real. That upset in that moment is very real for me. I'm exhausted. I've had to deal with Zen students all day, and now a six-year-old, okay? So it's very real. And I behave lovingly and compassionately and with kindness and patience. I may not feel it, but I do. Okay? So that's what we mean. It's not denial of the upset. And it's not trying to change the upset. It's owning the upset. I may be upset. I may be feeling upset. But I don't have to be it with you. That's the training. And that's why, again, back to you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young Buddha, you must have a code. And I, I call that the principle of identity. If you, the, part of the foundation towards making this work is to have an identity that you identify with and to live by that principle. So my principle is, at all times, do the least harm and to practice loving kindness and compassion in every circumstance and situation. And when I don't, to clean up my mess, okay? That is a code I vowed to live by 40 years ago and have kept ever since. Without that code, I could not do this. And without my vow to that code, I could not do this. Why, why bother, see? But I identify with that. That's the other piece that most people don't have in their efforts. There must be an, you, you know, there must be this identity with that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What's your name? Richard. Thank you, Richard. Hi. It's Martha. Hi, Martha. Could you just repeat what you said early on about reality? Um, yes. It was like three words. Or yeah, wasn't it cool? Yeah. I came up with that while I was writing all this. <laughs> we live unrealistic in a realistic reality. It's not the universe knows what it's doing. So we don't yeah. follow through. <laughs> we don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what did Lenin Buddha say? Hope is an hallucinogenic. Anyone else? Thank you, Martha. Example, example, example. Yeah. They already know this. And there's nothing you can do to prevent them from forgetting it. Okay? Unless you keep them locked up in your house and away from everybody else. And you're not going to do that. Okay? And, uh, but they already know this. And when my daughter is home with me, and you know, I get a 50% out of the month. And when she is home with me, I just make sure I'm mindful and example, example, example. They already know this. They just need to see it. Okay? That's how they feel safe with you. 
They're not alone. Nobody wants to be alone. Not even me. <laughs> Disappointment has a chimerical quality because our minds refuse to accept what is. Therefore, we relive the disappointment over and over again, never noticing after the initial experience that it is only a memory we are re-experiencing, much like watching old movie reruns. So those reoccurring circumstances and situations in your life that you want to get rid of and they keep coming back, all they are are the effects of unresolved issues from your past. Clear up the issues and they will disappear. You see? And they will disappear. And, again, as I talk about this in the relationship seminar, um, we are never, but you hear this, we are never, ever, ever upset about what happened. We are never angry at them for forgetting or for this, or whatever the reason may be. Our upset is an unresolved issue from the past because when, again, you understand how the mind is operating. Right now, when I look at you, wherever you may be, mind is attempting to understand you only by the information I have, and the information I have is my life experience and conditioning. It is referencing the past in order to understand you, in order to see what you are. So whenever we are upset because they forgot whatever, fill in the blank, we are upset and what is going on for us in that moment, and therapists again call this projecting. We are projecting into the present moment an unresolved issue from the past. So, you know, if we always find ourselves getting upset by the way they behave, it's about something we didn't forgive them for from the past. Yeah, yeah. Forgive them for from the past and watch what happens. Watch what happens. You know, all of this stuff, if you're listening and you're really thinking about it, back to what Chase asked earlier, all these teachers talked about this. They only talked about it in different languages. You know, Jesus emphasized forgiveness to the hilt. What was he talking about? What we've been talking about tonight. Forgive the past. Let it go. You know? And in, in, and in that tradition, I mean, to show you how obsessed we are with ego, I mean, he, he comes and he was supposed to pay the price once and for all. But we're still trying to fix all of God's mistakes. You know what I'm saying? You know, I tell my Christian brothers and sisters over the years, which I've had a lot of interaction with, he either died for your sins or he didn't. You can't have it any other way. You're either forgiven or you're not. You know? And if you're not, it's been one big joke anyway. We're all lost. So choose. Life or your bullshit. <laughs> And that's the meaning of dukkha. <laughs> dukkha was the cow's bullshit that they dropped all over the place. So, 
Well, that's what the Buddha was saying. The cause of your suffering is your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Is mindfulness and meditation the same thing? Yes. Seated meditation is where you train in order to be mindful when you're going about your day. So again, one of the mistakes that people make is not to do this regularly and consistently. Because my ability to deal with my disappointments comes from this place. Okay? This informs. In fact, when we talk, and we'll do more of this next month when we have more time, we're going to do the actual training of transforming this egocentric consciousness, which is done on the cushion, and it's done in a way where, again, you do this regularly and consistently, and again, understanding how the mind operates and how the brain operates, what we're going for on the cushion is this experience regularly and consistently of the serenity, the Buddha says, we, we are. You know, people try to make a peaceful mind, and the Zen master says, go get your mind and bring it to me, and I'll see what I can do with it. Okay? And what, the, what they're always pointing at is the Buddhist teaching that mind is naturally tranquil. You don't have to make it tranquil. It's naturally tranquil. And the only time it's not is when you're, you know, like uh, the example is often done with a clear, calm lake where you can see all the way through to the bottom. The only thing that changes that is when you put a stick in it and start stirring up the stuff on the bottom. Okay? And then you've got to wait for that to settle back down to have the clarity again. So again, uh, when you have that experience, that regular experience of tranquility, brain and mind creates an embedded memory of that. So that when I'm driving down the road and what happened earlier today happens, I don't need to rush home and get on the cushion to get calm again. Mm -hmm. That memory it becomes your refuge. Buddhism talks a lot about taking refuge. To take refuge in Buddha is to take refuge in your Buddha nature, which is always tranquil, when disappointments show up. And again, we'll talk about that next month. Part two of this. I'm sorry? What Christians understand is prayer. Yeah, yeah. Same thing, really. Yeah. And the only difference is the petitional prayer. Okay. What Buddhists don't do is they don't have a petitional prayer. Because what we say is it's already here already. We pray that we can see it <laughs> right here, right in front of us. And it's not quite, not different at all with what Jesus said when he said, if you don't see the kingdom of God here, you will never see it here or there or there, because it's within you. you know. It's all just language. Mm -hmm. You say tomato, I say tomato. I say Buddha, you say Jesus. All mean the same thing. But God and I are tight. I don't bother her and she doesn't bother me. <laughs> we get along real well. Any other questions? I have a question. Yes. And I, I'll state up front that I am ignorant. But I'm seeking understanding. And I've often said and believe that perception is reality. I like what you said about reality and realism but it, it seems to me and I'm sure it's much deeper than this but it seems to me 
like a grand sort of ambivalence. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, just tell me a little more what you mean by Like, okay, we're feeling happy, but yet at the same time, on the other side the, of the coin, the yin and the yang, knowing that unhappiness is coming, so don't get too wrapped up in the happiness. You know, the middle path seems like a feeling of ambivalence toward the happiness or unhappiness, like you said, of the, of the eight uh, conundrums. Yeah. One side of the coin or the other. Yeah. So it's not like, it doesn't seem like we should be seeking ambivalence, but on the surface, that's how it appears yeah. to me. Well, if I'm, if I'm experiencing happiness in the moment and all I'm thinking about is the unhappiness that will eventually follow, I'm not in the moment. I'm already in the future, okay? So when we talk about the middle way, okay, we mean it's not like I sit around, I'm having a great time, and I'm saying, in about 30 minutes, it's all gone. You know, it's not like that at all. It's like I enjoy the happiness, I'm grateful for the happiness, and when sadness shows up, whenever it does, I welcome that in too. That's what we mean by equanimity. You never ever turn who away who's at your door. Never. Okay. You welcome happiness as your teacher for the moment and sadness as your teacher for that moment. So it's not like, you know, ambivalence in that way. It's like, take what you get. Follow instructions, I tell my students. All you need to do to train here is follow instructions and take what you get. Okay? They never get either one right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If you're content, no matter what the situation, I don't know, isn't it better or for you, for, for one personally, not to be happy or sad, but just to be content in the middle? Well, to be content is to take what you get. Mm -hmm. Okay? So when I'm happy, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And when I'm sad, I'm sad. Mm -hmm. And the way the mind does it, though, is that it repels sadness as oppositional to happiness. And it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's its twin. Okay? So if, I, if, I want, if I'm a very... The reason why I can't find contentment is that I'm taking, you know, it's, I'm taking this hand, all right? And I love this side. Mm -hmm. And this side, I'm... Mm -hmm. That's how stupid that is, mm -hmm. you know? It's kind of like I say to people, it's stupid to go life, to go through life half-assed no matter what cheek you're left with. Okay? You can't do that any more than you can live dualistically that way. So it's, you know, you, you, you take the twin. You take the twin. That's the contentment. You know? Happiness doesn't mean necessarily that I'm never going to be sad again. And sadness doesn't mean I'm never going to be happy again. But the mind... You need to see this, but the mind, because of its, you know, obsession with happiness and its aversion to sadness, thinks that way. You know, when we're happy and having a good time, we're not thinking about, you know, the bad times to come. And when we're sad and, and, and we're thinking, though, I wish happiness was here, you see? And again, because of the dualistic nature of those emotions, you, you welcome both. You embrace both. That's the contentment. 
Again, and, and there's more to that, but again, we don't have enough time for me to talk about it tonight. We will next month. Um, what, what I'm really getting now is that we as a, a culture really, um, really don't see that there is, un, I mean, it's unacceptable to be unhappy. It's, it's like, that's right. not going to be in your life. That's right. not something that we accept. Right, we life. go to great lengths to avoid that. Right, yes. and so it's a real um, ignorance of, of duality. We're not yeah. taught that we live in, in, in duality. Right. Do, duality. Right. The world is, is made, up, right. made up of that. And you've often heard me say, our culture is not a conducive environment for what we're attempting to accomplish here. Mm -hmm. And you need to always remember that. That's why our efforts to try to find it in the culture we live in is stupid. No. Yeah, yeah. Our culture is not a conducive environment for being happy. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Any final questions? So next month we will continue to uh, take a look at not being disappointment when, disappointed when life disappoints us. In the meantime, I want to invite you to remember the calendar. We have some new uh, uh, lifestyle events coming up on the second and third Wednesdays of the month, starting next month, and there's a flyer out in the uh, entranceway to tell you a little more about that. But better than that, visit the uh, website, and it'll tell you in detail about uh, these events. Also, you're welcome to come back tomorrow. Tonight, as I often say, we talked about it. Tomorrow we do it. And so tomorrow morning at 9.30 with the Stockton University faculty and students here, I'll be leading a meditation which is about the training towards what we've been talking about. And uh, then next Wednesday, Roman University is visiting us. Next Wednesday night here, which you are also welcome to come and participate in if you like. Visit our calendar. Everything you need to know about what we're doing here is on that website all the time. You don't need to call and ask me because I'm going to say visit our calendar okay. and what have you because I don't have time to tell you. And so visit our calendar and it will give you information. But come back. As I said, you don't have to be a monk, but you have to live like a monk. So come back and live like a monk with us as often, as often, as often. And I'm not going to say as often as you can because that doesn't work. I'm telling you the truth. I've had enough. You know, there's... Um, uh, is it Shanti uh, biography of a yogi? What was uh, who's that? Ananda. Ananda, Ananda Yoga. I, I, I had recently watched a documentary on, on that book and was deeply. I nearly jumped out of my chair the moment uh, they got to the part where he's writing in his memoir about returning to India after many many decades of living here in the United States, and he goes back home to his teacher who. Uh, called him home and with his people in that community and all and he writes how wonderful it was to be among people he did not have to coax to be spiritual. Mm -hmm. So I am no longer coaxing you. I'm telling you, you got to practice. You want this to work, you got to practice. You don't practice, eh, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Me and God. <laughs> but I do also mean this as always. You came out here tonight to be with me, and it's been a privilege to be with you. Thank you.
permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.